And hello from Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News. This is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. And 50 years from now, we'll be sitting back and remembering, where were we when Draft 6 was released? Uh, that happened on Monday. Draft 6 is, of course, uh, for you, for you, you know, for you who haven't been keeping close tabs of the drafts, this is the latest version of the state's Every Student Succeeds Act compliance uh, document. Clark, you've been you've been reading it, you've been digesting it. You, you, as a connoisseur of the drafts, you, you you know a little bit about what's new in Draft Six and what's new in Draft Six and what's been the fallout on this whole ASA story this week. Sure, we're talking about uh, the latest plan to comply with the Every Student Succeeds Act, and just uh, for the interest of. Uh, Posterity, I was uh, sitting at home getting ready to watch the season finale of Better Call Saul on Monday night when I found Draft 6 online. It was kind of really... It was a good finale, too. It was. It was a good finale, but uh, this draft was kind of put out quietly by uh, Superintendent Ibarra and the State Department of Education. Then the next day they went through and and kind of let the public know about it. But several important things uh, about what we're talking about. Uh, Idaho, as we've talked about, faces a mid-September deadline to turn in its massive plan to comply with the Federal Every Student Succeeds Act. And that includes spending about $83 million a year in federal funding, mostly on programs to help students with uh, disadvantages or learning uh, disabilities or special needs. Uh, that's what we're getting into here. I mean, there's a lot of serious stuff here. All the joking about the draft right. side. This is a, a serious process that's going on here. And it also includes Idaho's school accountability plan. Uh, this is important mm-hmm. because Idaho has not had uh, a school accountability plan since 2014 when state leaders repealed the old five-star system, the old controversial uh, five-star system. So this new plan that we're going to be sending to the feds it includes a new accountability plan, uh, relying on multiple points of data. The, the buzzword they're throwing around is a data dashboard, but uh, in real simple terms, that basically means an on- a website, a place online where people can go and find out information uh, about their school and other schools. This latest draft, some things that it includes uh, that were unfinished in the previous drafts, um, This uh, revises some of the school quality and student success indicators that will be used uh, to judge these schools. New with this draft, it actually recognizes high-performing schools. There's plans in place to uh, distinguish and recognize the top 10% of high-performing public schools in the state of Idaho. And new with this, this draft, it also defines what constitutes an ineffective teacher. That's one of the things, Kevin, uh, that's in this new federal law. And when Superintendent Ibarra released this draft six uh, that we're all going to come to know and love, uh, she kicked off a 40-day public comment period. And this is important because this leads up to both the mid-September deadline with the feds mm-hmm. <clears throat> and before that uh, an August deadline with the State Board of Education. So members of the public can go online. There's a link at Idaho Ed News in my story. There's also links at the State Department of Education's website if you look under Consolidated State Plan. Uh, It's a 75-page draft, 76 pages, that outlines Idaho's plan to comply with this federal education law. Uh, You can look at the draft. You can go through it. Then there's also an opportunity to go online. It's almost kind of like taking a survey. I breezed through it earlier in the week and and leave comments. uh, Let state officials and policymakers know if you have concerns, if there's areas that you like. And uh, so that's kind of where we are now, marching 
ever closer to this final deadline. And this is important. This is really going to guide how our schools are run and oversight of schools go, starting with the upcoming 2017-2018 school year into the foreseeable future. Right, Kevin? Right. And talk a little bit about the fallout, too, because since the release of Draft 6, we've heard that uh, legislature is going to have a rare meeting next week, and uh, a state board member is kind of trying to weigh in and get uh, get some of the, the stakeholders a chance to to sift through this document. I mean, you're not the only person wading through this, so give, a, give us a sense of what's happening at the legislative level and also at the state board. Sure, sure. That's one thing that's been a little bit surprising to me as we get closer and closer to this deadline. And keep in mind, ESSA was signed into law, I believe, in December 2015. The state's been working on this for most of 2016 and most of 2017. But one thing that I keep hearing is that people haven't seen the plan. People aren't mm-hmm. familiar with the plan. Uh, until earlier this week, the plan really wasn't major parts of it were unwritten, uh, were unresolved and unfinished. And so uh, even though the legislature has adjourned for the year, we're convening a rare joint session of the House Education and Senate Education Committees. Uh, That's going to go down Tuesday of next week uh, at the State House. I talked to House Education Chair Representative Julie Van Orden earlier this week about it, and uh, she has not read Draft 6, and uh, that was one of the reasons of of calling this meeting. She got together with Senator Mortimer and they realized that a lot of lawmakers had not been brought up to speed on this plan. Uh, The best practices and guidelines really call for legislators to have eyes on it, to be briefed on it, to be familiar with it, to know what's in the plan. And uh, Representative Van Orden said she kind of proactively inserted herself into the conversation. She did some work through the National Conference of State Legislatures and actually traveled around and presented uh, and received presentations. But she said that's the only way she got updates on ESSA and Idaho's ESSA plan was because she sought that out. Uh, She said she's talked to many other lawmakers, House and Senate members, uh, who do not feel like they're up to speed on it. And so that's why, even though the legislature is not in session, we're calling this big meeting on Tuesday. Uh, the chief deputy superintendent, that's Pete Kohler, that's, mm-hmm. uh, that's uh, Superintendent Sherry Ybarra's chief deputy, he will be walking, uh, it's my understanding, he will be walking uh, legislators through this plan uh, for several hours uh, on Tuesday morning. But before we get there, uh, on Monday morning, the State Board of Education, specifically State Board of Education member, Tracy, or uh, excuse me, Debbie Critchfield, mm-hmm. working with Chief Policy Officer Tracy Bent, has put together a meeting with several of these education associations and these education groups. Last week, we told you that these groups uh, went so far as to say they felt disrespected. Two of them did that they were excluded from helping craft and draft the plan. Uh, they wrote a letter to Governor Otter and the seven State Board of Education members, and Debbie Critchfield said. That's enough, you know, message received. Uh, We're going to put together a meeting, an all-day meeting with several education groups, notably uh, the Teachers Union, the Idaho Education Association, and the Idaho School Boards Association. And they're going through this thing page by page, line by line on Monday. I'm going to try to be there for that too. Um, And the initial reaction is I talked to both the IEA and ISBA, very thankful uh, that this meeting is being called for next week. It's right at the beginning of the public comment period, so theoretically uh, they can go through this thing with a fine-tooth comb and really get a sense of what's in the latest draft and then still have about a month uh, to make comments, which is what these groups were asking for, right, Kevin? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So your so, hands will be full next week. You'll be at uh, all these meetings uh, trying to get us the, the sense of the latest on 
the ESSA plan and the ESSA rollout. Yeah, I'm going to be in meetings all day Monday and all day Tuesday with policymakers and, and educators and administrators going through this plan, and I'll be happy to report back both in daily stories at idahoednews.org and on uh, next week's podcast. I'll be happy to report back uh, what the reaction is to this latest draft six and uh, what our next steps are as we get closer and closer to this important um, deadline. So thanks, Kevin, for taking a couple of minutes and letting me walk through that. But I want to talk about other goings-on with the Idaho legislature. Uh, We're talking about the Funding Formula Committee. The band got back together earlier this week. This was your week in meetings. Tell me a little bit about the School Funding Formula Committee, what they're looking at. And we get a sense of, I I, I think you talked about... uh, High stakes in a, in, a, in a long, slow process, right? Right. I mean, we knew going in that this was going to take a while, and definitely from the sense of the meeting on Tuesday, uh, the lawmakers are in no rush to wrap this thing up. I mean, I think they realize the enormity of the task ahead, and uh, a lot of talk about how this really could be a three- to five-year plan of you know rewriting the formula and then rolling out the changes in the formula. So nothing's going to happen overnight, and certainly nothing dramatic happened on Tuesday. A little bit more of a step back, the uh, the committee heard a little bit more about kind of the history of school funding laws, going back to, I had never heard of this before, I'm not making this up, the old deluder Satan law. Yes, old deluder Satan law. Yeah, that's that, not one of those trendy indie bands no, that you hear about. Be, that's that, an actual... It would be a good name for a trendy <laughs> indie band. This is the law that was passed by the Massachusetts colony in... Uh, the 1640s that basically was sort of the the father if you will of school funding laws in in the country um i, I would personally love to see if they rewrite the formula in idaho that they call it the, the new deluder satan law or something or work satan into the title just for just for my uh warped amusement but <laughs> yeah. i won't hold my breath but really, we got a sense it's going to be a long process, and the stakes are extremely high because this is how the state carves up $1.7 billion of, of tax money, how this money is distributed to school districts. And you know, we know that as, the, as we really get down to doing the computer modeling, doing the consulting, looking at changes in, in the formula, it's going to have an effect on schools. It's going to have an effect on students. There are going to be some districts maybe that uh, come out ahead, some that come come behind uh, that, that see you know, a loss of money. There was some discussion about how other states have handled that, and they've done kind of hold harmless provisions so that no no state, no district, that I mean, uh, loses money. So everybody at least is kept at the same level. And there are pros and cons to that. Obviously, it, it, it smooths things out at the local level. Uh, it, it heads off cuts, but it also doesn't really get you to where you've changed the formula as much. So there was a good deal of discussion about that on Tuesday. Where the committee left it, uh, they will meet again in mid-August, uh, August 14th, to continue the work. Really hard to tell at this point, uh, really hard to handicap what exactly this committee is going to have to present to the 2018 legislature in terms of changes. Uh, They do have to report, but do they bring forth legislation? Do they bring forth proposed changes? A little early to tell about that. But, you know, again, uh, kind of a sense, and you can read my story at idahoidnews.org to get a, a sense of sort of the mood of the meeting on Tuesday. This is a big job, and we knew that going in. And I think the the committee is 
aware of that uh, even more so maybe now than they were the first year because now it's getting down to where they're going to have to start to make some decisions and I think they realize the enormity of those decisions. Yeah, and you've been covering this, Kevin, uh, for a long time. You covered the, the whole work that the committee did last year during the legislative off session, but uh, this is a complicated school funding formula that is based on attendance and but it was written when I was in grade school, right? It doesn't mm-hmm. take into account things like online learning, the proliferation of charter schools, student mobility, technology in the classroom. That's why we're taking a look at this, right? And, and maybe that's also why this committee is going to take such a long time to do this. Because you're all right. 1994 was the last time the state rewrote its school funding formula. And I don't need to tell anybody how much the world has changed, how much the classroom has changed since 1994. If you figure that, you know, it, it's taken 23 years to get to the point of even talking about rewriting the formula. If you're going to do this, you're going to probably try to do a document that's going to stand some test of time so that you're not turning around and having to redo this in five years or seven right. years. You want something that's going to be be permanent. So definitely this is a committee that wants to take its time and seems determined to... Uh, to take some time and walk through this. So, you know, year two for the committee uh, began you know, kind of slowly, but you get a sense that it's, you know, that that's deliberate, that this is going to be a deliberately laborious process. Yeah, for sure. I, I appreciate you covering that, and uh, I, I get the sense there's some heavy hitters from the legislature oh, yeah. involved yeah, a powerful in this. Group. And, they don't want to bring something group. that's uh, half-baked or not fully vetted or doesn't have buy-in. There's going to be, I feel like, enough of a political debate uh, at whatever point they have anything ready to go in terms of a recommendation. So I think they really want to uh, do their homework, and um, that's certainly understandable. So stay tuned. Sounds like we're going to take the month of July off from committees. Uh, from committees, and then you will be back following them in August. Uh, I think I have jury duty that week, so it's oh, all yours, okay, Kevin. All right, well, that will be my birthday present to you. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Appreciate yeah. it. <laughs> uh, moving on, uh, we just introduced this topic uh, last week, but you had a chance to dig deeper into some SAT scores, and uh, SAT scores are important in Idaho because it's part of the, it relates to the 60% goal. It has to do with uh, preparing students for life beyond high school. But uh, you and our data analyst, uh, former school superintendent Randy Schrader, had a chance to drill down to the re- latest SAT scores. Um, a little bit of a mixed bag, right, Kevin? Tell me a little bit about what you found. Well, yeah, and what I wanted to do this time, and there, there's a story in a blog both at idahoednews.org, and we really kind of dig down into the numbers. You can see you can see how some of the bigger districts did this year versus last year. You can also see which which schools had the, the highest performance, uh, which schools had the lowest performance, which schools gained ground, which schools lost ground. We we try to we try to give you some of that uh, some of those details. But what what I really wanted to dig into in in the story was this whole notion of the SAT as an indicator of college readiness. Uh, the College Board, the vendor that created the SAT and distributes and administers the SAT, has uh, college readiness benchmarks uh, on the verbal portion of the SAT and the math portion. And what we saw with the numbers uh, this year from Idaho juniors taking the test in April uh, during the state's SAT day, pretty flat scores overall and actually slight reductions in some of those college readiness benchmarks, um, the percentage of kids who 
um, met both of the benchmarks down a little bit. We're at 32% of students meeting both of those college readiness benchmarks. And actually, there are more students who met neither of the benchmarks than met both of the benchmarks. Yeah. And, and, and what all that kind of means is it's a, another indicator of kind of where, where students are as the state continues to try to ramp up uh, college enrollment, as uh, they continue to encourage more students to continue their education after high school, you've got these SAT scores that you know are are not uh, going upward. They're they're not they're, they're flat, and the college readiness benchmarks are are pretty flat. Had a chance to talk to Linda Clark, the uh, president of the state board, yeah, she's the co-chair co of the higher education task force that Governor Otter put together. She's also the former superintendent in the West Data School District, and I asked her. Well, first of all, we talk about this benchmark, this college readiness benchmark. How reliable is it? I asked her that, and, and she said, well, you know, the SAT's been around for a long time. It's got a lot of, uh, it, it's got some some stature, and it's got a reputation in the higher education community. So what the college board says in terms of college readiness uh, carries some weight. Uh, her take on it is, you know, this is just one indicator Um you know, she doesn't like one single indicator of school quality or student uh, student performance. So, you know, she wants to take a broader look, and she encourages uh, taking a broader look at, at college readiness and where students really stack up in terms of, of college readiness. She hopes those numbers will improve, though, over time. And, and the, the point that I kind of left it with when I talked to her and I kind of bring it up in my story, when you get the snapshot of students at the end of their junior year of high school, they're kind of either college ready or not. I mean, there isn't a whole lot of time at that stage of the of the K-12 cycle to, to get a student from being not ready for college to being ready for college. You've got barely a year. So, so this is really sort of a, you know, a point in time late in that process. So, you know, Obviously, uh, as the state is trying to get more students college ready and get more students to attend college, you know, it all ties into everything that's going yeah. on leading up to 11th grade. And, and you're not going to see much change in the numbers based on you know, what you're doing with you know, early childhood reading, or early elementary uh, schools reading curriculum. You know, you're not going to see that affect 11th grade scores for a long, long time. But this kind of gives you a sense of where we are right now, and, and the numbers are... Yeah, they're a little bit uh, they're a little bit concerning. Yeah, and the SAT is something that's important in the state of Idaho. So much so uh, that there is a state law that requires all high school students to take a college placement type test uh, in order to graduate. And the state legislature also invests about a million bucks a year uh, in order to make it free uh, right. for high school students to take the SAT. You and I both have taken the SAT, and certainly you, as a parent, know that. Uh, Yes, it is just one indicator, but it is an indicator that college admission boards look at, uh, and sometimes that can certainly affect uh, those admissions decisions, especially at more selective type institutions, oh, oh, right? Oh, definitely, definitely. And, and because the state has, pays so many students fees to take the SAT, these April scores, they are a fairly decent illustration or a fairly decent snapshot of how that student body compares. We're getting a representative sample right. size. You're getting 89% of the eligible juniors taking the test on that given time. So, so it's a pretty good way of looking at kind of where 
where that school's students stand and how they stack up. And we looked at that a little bit in our package. And there are really no surprises here either. Uh, the, the schools that were highest performing, you've got some charter schools at the top of that list. You've got, uh, you've got some public high schools, some traditional public high schools at the top of the list. Um, you know, Moscow High School, Boise High School, Eagle High School. And the unifying thread is, um, whether it's a traditional high school we're talking about or a charter high school, almost all of the really top performers have a lot of demographic advantages, fairly low poverty rates relative to the state average. And then you start looking at some of the schools down towards the bottom of that list. Um, you're talking about schools with higher poverty rates. So you've still got that achievement gap, not unique to Idaho, not unique to the SAT. But when you talk about these uh, test scores, and you talk about achievement, you have to look at it through the prism of, uh, of demographics, which is something we've been writing a lot about this week. Uh, Devin Bodkin, our Eastern Idaho reporter, dropped a couple of stories about charter schools and about some of the uh, demographic differences between right. charter schools and traditional schools and the, the lack of diversity in charter schools versus uh, traditional public schools. So that's worth looking at. You should probably read those stories, too. They're, they're, they're good. They're very well, well done, very it's comprehensive. Our most, yeah, uh, probably our most talked about uh, series of stories this week, at least in terms of our online comments. I thought it was really, really interesting in one of the you know newspaper lingo here, uh, one of the sidebars, uh, the companion story. Uh, Devin uh, went and met a family uh, who lived within sight of a charter right school the from a charter school and they did not realize that that would be a school that their children could attend they didn't think their kids were smart enough they didn't understand that it was a public school um, and so that kind of highlighted to me some of the uh, diversity issues and demographic issues uh, that charter schools continue to face that was in the Blackfoot area and this particular school its demographics um, are, are different from the overall demographics of, of the city uh, of, of Blackfoot, right. for sure. Right, not unique to that Blackfoot charter school or the charter right. schools in the Blackfoot That's community. That's something going, going on, on in all the state. The state. Yeah. So uh, Devin looks at the the, it's, you know, the demographics of charter schools, and I think that's a good, uh, good thing to look at as you also look at some of the SAT scores and some of the achievement gaps that, that we covered this week. I think that covers all of our top stories this week. I'm looking forward to having a relaxing weekend because I'm going to be in meetings all day on Monday and Tuesday learning about this sixth draft of the ESA plan. So I hope everybody else uh, has a great weekend, has a lot of fun. Summer is kicked off. Summer is underway in full force. And so I hope everybody has a great weekend and a fun summer ahead. Meanwhile, we will be back next Friday with another brand new edition of the Extra Credit Podcast. Uh, we love it when our readers and our listeners follow us on Twitter, at Idaho Ed News. And, uh, yeah, thanks so much for listening. As always, I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week.